I thought all I had to do to be a Christian to get into heaven was simple. But now, now Jesus tells me I have to deny myself, give up my life, all that I am, take up my cross, and follow him. Follow him, but I've read the story. He's not going to heaven, not, not yet. He's going to die. I didn't sign up for that. That's the Reverend Dr. Chris Thomas, and today he shares a challenging message of faith called Expectations. I'm Dalton Rushing. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now, here's your host to introduce today's speaker. This is your guest host, Dalton Rushing, and today on day one, we're pleased to have with us the Reverend Dr. Chris Thomas, senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Wilson, North Carolina. Before coming to Wilson in 2020, he was pastor of First Baptist Church of Williams in Jacksonville, Alabama, for seven years. Chris earned his bachelor's degree from Samford University, his Master of Divinity from the George W. Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University, and his Doctor of Ministry degree from Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology. Chris, welcome to Day One. Thanks for having me. You last preached on Day One two years ago, so bring us up to date about what's happening with the people at First Baptist Church in Wilson. Yeah, uh, man, two years sounds uh, like it was also a decade ago hmm. and also maybe a week ago. Yeah, we're like a lot of churches trying to figure out what post-COVID looks like. Sure. Uh, some of that is... What things have we stopped doing we want to pick back up? What things did we pick back up that maybe we shouldn't have? Mm. Uh, what does our community look like post-COVID? Uh, so, yeah, it's it's been an interesting time. Uh, we've been rebuilding staff that was uh, going on pre-COVID. Uh, and so we're really turning a corner on that. And, yeah, just trying to figure out what this world looks like, and even in Wilson especially, is that our city is growing mm. as uh, more of a bedroom community to Raleigh, in a sense. So we're seeing a lot of new faces, a lot of new places, a lot of new people. So trying to figure out what does a post-COVID church in a changing community uh, look like. So give us a sense of that community in Wilson. What's going on around you, and how is the church reaching out to serve? Yeah, so Wilson was uh, a main sort of tobacco market hmm. for a long time. And as you can imagine, not really anymore. Uh. Uh, so a lot of what's happening in Wilson, also a big banking community uh, for a long time. Truist Bank uh, mm -hmm. began there in Wilson as BB&T. And so the city has seen a lot of transition from that sort of era and moving more into a uh, just having new places come in. Uh, it mm -hmm. was a kind of a monumental thing after I got there during the pandemic when the original BB&T towers, there were two sort of seven-story buildings, were imploded. And in mm. its place, there's a brand new YMCA, some new uh, apartments that have uh, just recently opened. And downtown is, is really becoming uh, a vibrant thing. But it comes with this sort of two-edged ethical dilemma, mm. right? You've got a small town that it's great to see things growing. It's great to see, you know, all of these new people and, and faces coming to town, but at the expense of maybe 
pushing people out mm. is the the edge of gentrification, sure. right? Seeing people who, there's very little affordable housing. And as a church wrestling with that question, how do we help with that? Mm. Um, aside from trying to rent out Sunday school rooms to people, which we mm. definitely couldn't do, how do we affect that kind of change or at least make that known to people in town? And then in understanding that housing is part of a larger dynamic in people's lives uh, when it comes to how they live. Uh, it's all it's all kind of a zero-sum thing, housing, food, child care, health care, these kinds of things. So trying to figure out how we as a church that's very visible, we're mm-hmm. right downtown, tall steeple. We don't have a main street in Wilson. We have Nash Street. Sure. We're right on Nash. And trying to figure out how we go from just being this visible brick building mm-hmm. to how are we really changing our community. That excites me, mm. but it also comes with it, it, it comes with some challenges. Sure, because churches we, we tend to want to idealize a different era, mm. and we want to get back to that era rather than looking at what can we really do with what we have now. And and I it's it's been encouraging and in, in at times challenging to hear people kind of think nostalgically about pre-COVID. Sure, and to think about where we are now, that that's uh, that's a lot of what I'm, I think we're really trying to wrestle with and focus on now. So it's good work. Yeah. Chris, I understand that you brought together an ecumenical group of clergy in the Wilson area and you meet together every week. What's that group been involved in? Yeah. So I came to Wilson in the middle of the pandemic. I preached in view of a call to a camera mm-hmm. and then quickly realized that all the other clergy in town were retiring or leaving. <laughs> And so the ones who came in were all around my age, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, but we were all in the very same place of life. Sure. And since I beat them all by a couple of months, I was the senior, <laughs> the downtown dean. clergy. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a matter of just contacting people and saying, hey, would you guys like to get together initially to talk about the lectionary? Sure. I think a lot of us clergy types, that's just an excuse to get uh-huh. together. Uh and so we started getting together, and you could tell some of them were nervous because I was a Baptist. <laughs> so I had to say, well, I'm not that kind of Baptist. <laughs> uh, but we've met together every week. We we had Thanksgiving together. Um, we've had we share holidays with each other. We all have kids. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of a in in a town the size of Wilson. We become kind of our friend group. Nice. And there was a tradition in Wilson during Lent where there would be these midweek services, and mm-hmm. they would rotate around churches. And then I had asked, when I first came, said, what if we did a community Good Friday service together? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a little little odd because it's blatantly Christian and ecumenical to do sure. a Good Friday service. But I thought it would be a good thing to bring our community together. And so the first year we, we just did the Good Friday service. And it, 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 was, a, it was an experience to, to say. Uh, so the next year when people said, well, now that we're kind of getting back to normal, we'd like to have these Wednesday services and maybe lunch after. And we all said, well, if we're going to do this, we'd like to have some uniting mission Hmm. around it. And we thought about housing. We thought about some other things. And uh, one of the Episcopal priests in town, my friend Paul, uh, came to us and said, hey, I know this organization that if we raise $30,000, it will eliminate all of the medical debt in Wilson County. Wow. And I said, yeah, I think if we can't do that, mm. you know, over the six weeks of Lent among all of our churches, what what are we doing? Mm. 
And so we would have these midweek services and always have an offering. We would have links. We were sharing this on social media. And we had raised not just enough for Wilson County, but some for a neighboring county wow. as well. So um, it was really it was really kind of amazing to see this thing happen where we go. This, this equates to like millions of dollars in medical debt that we canceled. Wow. And all because we were just getting together on Wednesdays to, you know, depress people who would Lent hmm. and then have soup and salad or soup and sandwiches afterwards and take up a little money. Sure. And so, yeah, that was, um, that was a really, it was a really powerful thing. It united a lot of us. And so we've done other things together. Um, we have a community concerts sometimes. Mm. All of our uh, musicians and music ministers are also pretty close in a close knit thing. So um, it's been really, it's been encouraging to be able to have not just a collegiality, but sure. friendship with these folks and to see how that makes a real difference in our community. Chris, that makes me wonder, how did your call to ministry come about? Yeah. So I, I didn't grow up going to church. Mm. Uh, I grew up in, I always say I grew up in LA. You can tell by my accent. Lower, uh, lower, lower Alabama. Lower Alabama. That joke works once. It never <laughs> works again. Um, so yeah, I grew up, um, just, you know, really kind of blue collar, hardworking kind of uh, family dynamic. And my best friend's dad was a minister. Mm. And so if I spent the night at his house, <clears throat> we went to church. And I remember I would go some Wednesday nights because we played football in the churchyard. Mm. And that was when I learned to not like vacation Bible school <laughs> because he wouldn't tell me it was VBS week and I'd show up ready to play football. And now I had to drink like oversweetened Kool-Aid and butter <laughs> cookies and watch flannel grams about, you know, Abraham. But when I was a senior in high school, I kind of had my life mapped out. I was going to be a school bus mechanic and went into work four days after I graduated from high school and was told that I'd worked myself out of a job. Wow. And so I spent that summer uh, installing air conditioning units and running gas line. My dad had been in uh, a pipe fitter forever and really just trying to figure out what I was going to do with mm-hmm. my life and enroll, eventually enrolled in community college. And it was uh, during that time I'd been baptized when I was 18. This is the following summer. It was on a, a mission trip to Southwest Alabama uh, just a little backyard Bible club kind of thing. And there was a kid that wouldn't talk to anybody else. And I don't know, there was something like we just kind of connected. And my home church pastor came up behind me, put his arm around me when we were leaving. He goes, I think God might be calling you to do something. Hmm. And the way that I interpreted that was there are people that that normal clergy type church folks, they just, they don't know how to talk to them or mm. speak to them or communicate or or maybe they don't have the experience of the life that these folks live. Sure. And so throughout my ministry, I mean, I felt called to that. I started pursuing it. I went to college. I mean, there was no other reason for me to go to college but to study religion. Mm. No, no one else in my family had been. So it was just this wild, unique experience of moving to a college campus, then learning about seminary. Uh, I mean, I thought divinity school is where they made like confections or something. Mm. I didn't know. Um, so I went to, to seminary and just continued uh, developing a love for preaching, pastored a small church in Central Texas while I was at Baylor. And then just it, it kept growing from that. But every place I've been, that's always been sort of the, the, the feeling I've had is who are the people who are being left out? Mm-hmm. Uh, who are the people in the community? Who are the people the church isn't really reaching? Sure. Not because... They don't want to, but they just don't know how. Mm. They don't know how to talk the language. So um, I guess that's how I've I've 
I still sort of hold on to that way of thinking about my calling. Uh, so, cause it, it can be, as I'm sure, you know, uh, church life can be a little rote and, sure. uh, um, monotonous at times and so can the results. But mm. I remind myself, well, there are people, you know, for, for whom the church may not be the answer, but, but that doesn't mean they, they're not longing for something that the church may be able to offer or that I, as a clergy person may be able to, to help them walk along. So, Well, Chris, this is the second Sunday of Lent. Your sermon focuses on the gospel reading from Mark chapter eight, some difficult teaching by Jesus about what's going to happen to him and why. Would you read it for us? Absolutely. So Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I wonder what stood out for you here as you prepared your sermon. Yeah, I I think anytime I read a text, I try to, you know, read what's around it, read the Mm. context of it. It's so easy to pull a a pericope, a passage out, and then just sort of, well, can I find the three points a joke in a poem in here hmm. somewhere? Um, and this, I, I've always found it interesting the way that Jesus rebukes Peter by calling him Satan. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought of it that way until I'd heard someone say it that way. I'd always thought this was Jesus sort of speaking into the ether, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all do. We walk by like a pastry shop or something, mm-hmm. right? Get behind me, Satan. And I don't know. There was something about this idea of the expectations that we place on what Jesus is supposed to do for us. And this is what Peter is doing, right? He's Jesus says he has to undergo the suffering, and Peter Peter rebukes him. I mean, the gall of this guy to rebuke hmm. Jesus. And and so I don't know, that that kind of just hangs in there for me. That that's usually when I'm preparing a sermon or something. It's like, what's the thing that really, you know, stuck to my ribs reading sure. this? What was the the thing that was there? Because uh, that's usually the thing that's that, that's probably the spirit giving me an itch to scratch. So, Well, Chris, we look forward to hearing your message on this passage. It's called Expectations. Thanks for sharing it with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to listen again to today's program with Chris Thomas with an extended interview, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app to Day One Weekly Program, or you can stream or download it on our website at dayone.org. And if you'd like a free printed sermon transcript, just call us at 404 815 9110. Way back when I used to work in an auto shop in my hometown, we would have a handful of guys who would bounce from shop to shop 
working a few months here, maybe a year or two there, but never anywhere too terribly long. There were different reasons they didn't stay put. Some of them could just never catch on to the whole come-to-work-on-time idea. Some of them would work just enough to get caught up on whatever bills they had and then quit, believing they could skate by without working for a while. Some of them would drink, smoke, or fight too much. And then, well, there was Joey. Joey's problem was a bit more, let's say, psychological. Joey came to work in the shop after I had been there for a while, but I knew Joey. I had seen him at other shops, even at a dealership once, when I was a parts runner. I knew he had a real nice, expensive toolbox he bought from the tool truck on credit, and he often needed help moving it from shop to shop. Joey had a reputation around the shops in town of being slow, which is not a desirable nor profitable quality in a mechanic. He complained a lot, was less than reliable, but when help is hard to find, you'll take whatever help you can get. So Joey worked a few weeks with the rest of us in this little shop, where folks would bring their rusted-out Oldsmobiles, their overloaded F-100s, their ragged-out late-80s Hondas. Then he quit, which surprised literally no one. As he was pushing his toolbox up the ramp of a borrowed trailer, we heard him yell at the shop manager, I'm tired of getting my hands covered in grease, having to work on all this old, nasty junk. I distinctly remember thinking, What did you expect? Folks aren't rolling in here with their late model Rolls Royce or Mercedes, fresh from the car wash, needing windshield wipers replaced for a few hundred dollars. This is how we earn our living, getting our hands dirty, working on junk. Joey's primary problem was his expectations of what he thought he ought to be doing just didn't line up with reality. Rather obvious reality to the rest of us, I suppose. I suppose I shouldn't be too hard on Joey, though. After all, don't we all sometimes get our expectations out ahead of reality, even plain, clearly obvious reality? We can allow our expectations at times to even overshadow what matters the most. You know, I kind of think that's what's going on in our text today. Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, this isn't Jesus' teaching in parables. This message about suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection isn't another riddle to leave his followers scratching their heads and asking, what does this mean? No, Mark says Jesus said all this quite openly, which is way different from what Mark says back in chapter 4 and verse 34, where he tells us that Jesus did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. This sudden frankness on the part of Jesus signals a shift in the narrative, and what's more, that shift comes with what is the first of three of Jesus' predictions about his death. Jesus said all this quite openly, without sugarcoating, without flowery language, without parabolic twists, and without cloudy riddles. In other words, this is reality. This, in all of Jesus' teachings, may just be what matters the most. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. But then there's Peter. Peter's expectations are different, and if we're honest, ours are too, because, to tell the truth, to be really honest with you, I don't really like what Jesus says. I don't like this reality. 
No, I don't want a savior, a messiah, a god who suffers. The sort of savior I want is supposed to be on the other end of that suffering, on the giving end of it, causing suffering to evildoers, reprobates, fornicators, sinners, all those others who reject him and his ways for their wickedness and insubordination. Isn't that what a savior, a hero, a messiah, a son of God does? A savior doesn't get rejected and killed? Are you kidding me? A savior doesn't die. He saves. He saves the day, rides in on a white horse with guns blazing, sword in hand, kicking tail and taking names. A savior doesn't die. So it only goes without saying, a savior who doesn't die doesn't resurrect. No, I want a savior who does away with suffering. A savior who saves me from the pain of rejection. A savior who has avoided death, so I can too. Peter, in the words right before our passage this morning, identifies Jesus as the Messiah. But then Jesus, as he so often does, shatters our self-centered ambitions and expectations with what he says in the text before us. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again. It's no wonder Peter tries to set him straight. Mark says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, of course he did. He just declared him the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for, the one to deliver them from Roman oppression, the promised one of God. And now, now he's going to tell them he must suffer, be rejected, and die. He has to, like it's necessary, like it's part of what really matters in this whole wild way of God. That's crazy. The disciples, they didn't sign up for this. Of course, if I'm honest, I didn't sign up for this either. I was 18 when I felt the waters of baptism wash over me. I'd been going to church pretty regularly for a few months, listening to sermons about how much of an awful sinner I was, how hot hell was going to be for those folks who didn't say the sinner's prayer before they died. I'd read the King James Bible the church gave me for high school graduation, tracts that illustrated what the Great White Throne Judgment was going to be like, and most of the Left Behind books. I knew hell was a place I didn't want to be, and heaven sounded pretty good. I mean, mansions, gold streets, crystal seas, all that. Of course, for me, it was the love of God, a love that continues to shape me as I try to understand it, to embrace it, to enact it more each day, the love of a God who I was told loved me enough to rescue me from all of that literal damnation by sacrificing his son that sealed the deal. I was told all I would have to do is pray that sinner's prayer, walk the aisle, tell the church, and get baptized. Then I'd be set for heaven, no longer bound for the depths of hell. So that's what I did. That's what I signed up for. Get out of hell and into heaven. That's the kind of Messiah I wanted, the kind that gets me out of hell and into the exclusive, eternal, exuberant home that is heaven. Of course, Jesus, as he so often does, shattered my self-centered ambitions and expectations with, well, with the words he says in these verses to the crowd after calling Peter Satan for rebuking him. He said, If anyone have become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, 
and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Wait, if I want to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, I have to deny myself, lose my life? Does Jesus mean I'll have to be willing to die? I thought I had just had to agree to a few fundamental bullet points, pray this prayer about confessing my sins, repenting, and accepting Jesus into my heart. I thought I was supposed to get baptized, you know, all the way under, the right way, come to church most Sundays, read my Bible, drink sweet tea instead of Bud Light, and stay out of trouble. I thought all I had to do to be a Christian, to get into heaven, was simple. But now, now Jesus tells me I have to deny myself, give up my life, all that I am, take up my cross, an instrument of death, a message that can be so troubling to folks, even and maybe especially religious folks, and follow him? Follow him, but I've read the story. He's not going to heaven, not, not yet. He's going to die. I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for the harp and a crown, the mansion over the hilltop, the sweet by and by, Beulah land, not a cross, not death, not self-sacrifice. Can I tell you something? It's hard to sell that kind of gospel. Really, it's hard to get folks to sign up to die, to give away what they have, to live their lives for others. It's hard. It's a whole lot easier to get folks to buy in if there's something in it for them, some prize at the end, a reward that makes it all worth it. If you can tell them to be a good person, to love their neighbors, because that's how they'll get jewels and their crowns in heaven. That's how they'll get the bigger mansion around the corner from Jesus. If you can tell them that God will bless them with material wealth here and now, that'll get them to sign up. Promise them the world in return for their faithfulness. But what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Could it be that when we ask to have faith, religion, church, whatever you want to call it, when we seek to be so-called good Christians as a way to have more, to have a better life, that what we long for is more, what we long for is a better life, not God? Could it be that when our ultimate reason for following Jesus is to go to heaven, that what we long for is heaven and not Jesus? I know that's a hard way to think about it. After all, I know you're not trying to gain the whole world. But maybe, just maybe, you've got your eye on a little corner lot in heaven. Jesus said, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. If a life full of good times, pleasure, and happiness is what you want, I pray you find it. If a mansion on a gold-paved street is what you want, I pray you get it. But if we want to follow Jesus, we must be ready to follow him down paths that lead in new directions, paths that may lead to suffering, roads that only bring rejection, and be ready to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If we truly want to follow Jesus, then I pray we begin this day, that we all begin this day, to give up more and more of ourselves, to no longer see the world through limited lenses of self-preservation, 
and to take up our cross, deadly though it may be, and follow the one who calls us into the truest reality of life, a life lived for what matters most. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you call us into a deeper reality, one that goes beyond our expectations. May we have strength and boldness to heed your call and to follow you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Reverend Dr. Christopher Thomas, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Wilson, North Carolina. For a free transcript of his message for the second Sunday in Lent, titled Expectations, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day 1, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. And to listen again to today's program, read the sermon transcript, search the sermon archives, and much more, visit us online at dayone.org. Keep in mind that Day One depends on the donations of our faithful listeners. Please send your gift today to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305, or donate online at dayone.org. From all of us at Day One, thank you for your support. I'm Dalton Rushing. Next week on Day One, we're pleased to present an encore program with the noted Old Testament professor and acclaimed author, the Reverend Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Don't miss his inspiring message for the third Sunday in Lent, Strategies for Staying Emancipated. That's next week on Day One. Now our Day One preacher, Chris Thomas, offers some final reflections on his sermon today titled Expectations. And Chris, thank you for helping us wrestle with Jesus' words here in Mark 8. You began by talking about our expectations, like Joey's expectations about working in the auto shop you worked in way back when. I think we can all identify with Joey in some ways when we set our expectations way out ahead of reality. You said, you see that happening here in Mark as Peter reacts to Jesus' words because they don't match up with his expectations. I wonder if you'd say more about how we should set our expectations about life and faith. And what should we do when we realize they don't line up with reality? Mm, that's good. Yeah, I, th- I think often, and I don't know if this is, is our cultural situation or what, but I think often our, our expectations about a lot of things can be pretty high. I mm. mean, whether it's, boy, we're going to buy this new car and it's going to be the best thing we've ever had and all of our problems will go away. Mm. Uh, or, man, if I can just get over into the weekend, then it'll be better. Or I used to think, boy, if I can just graduate, this will be great. And if I can just hit this milestone. And so sometimes our expectations aren't so easily articulated until they're they're not met. Sure. Right. And so I think when it comes to faith, a lot of our expectations are, well, I'm, I'm a good person now, so everything should be good. Or I'm, I'm a good a good and active member of my religious community, so why isn't my life better? Hmm. And I follow Jesus now. Why isn't my life better? And and I always like to say, well, it's not all, you know, cake and dancing. Like hmm. Jesus calls us to some pretty heavy stuff because the world is filled with some heavy stuff. 
And so I don't know if it's a matter of setting different expectations or maybe allowing ourselves not to have any, which is mm-hmm. very hard to do. Sure. Um, but to not have too many and just live live very much in the moment and listen to the direction of the Spirit. That That's something I'm trying to do more and more now is to to be present. Sure. Uh, if you can be present, expectations really don't matter. I like to say, you know, the past you can't change, the future you can't control. So it's it's about living right here in this moment and, and holding any expectations with an open hand to know that, well, if I, if I go here, this will be different, or if I'm a part of this community, my life will be better. But rather to say, if I'm a part of this community, what, what's, in, what's going to happen? What am I bringing to the table? Or what can God teach me through these things? That's a hard place to be. Sure. Because I think we are conditioned not only to have expectations, but to have them met. Mm. And when they're not met, we, we either get upset or we move on to the next thing. And in the life of the church, I hear it all the time. It's the expectation of, well, I, I had hoped that the sermon would be shorter. Right. I had hoped that the music would be more encouraging or the thing all of us in all of us clergy have heard. Well, I'm just not being fed. Mm. And it's like, well, the expectation is different. What were you expecting in this engagement of worship? What were you expecting in coming into this community? And sometimes it's just way off base. Mm. And and that's hard in, in the world that we inhabit as clergy to try to balance not just expectations, but but reality, with folks. So, yeah, I I wish I had a packaged answer to give mm. you, and then I could write a book and retire. <laughs> it makes me think, though, like Peter, we want a savior who is a hero, a Messiah, a son of God, a savior who doesn't get rejected and killed. But Jesus is quite open about what lies ahead for him in this passage: suffering, rejection, and death. And he calls his followers to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. This denial and suffering for Jesus' sake certainly flies in the face of our culture. We want it all now, and then we want all the glories of heaven too. You said in your sermon this sort of gospel can be a hard sell, and yet we know Christians who do live this way, who serve Jesus no matter what it costs them. So how do we say yes to this way of Yeah, uh, well, I think, you know, the, the idea that we know people even so, even as a Baptist, I think we have our saints, right? That we venerate, we look at them and go, "Well, those are the people who got it right." Mm. And then, rather than trying to, I don't know, maybe aspire to that, we we put them on a different plane, mm. right? I remember uh, back in my my last church, uh, a woman named Nancy, one of the most wonderful people I've ever known. Uh, she had died, and I was talking to her family about what we would say at her funeral, and her. Um, her, her granddaughter's husband, I guess her grandson-in-law. Sure. Um, he and I were talking, and I said, "Man, they just don't—they don't make them like Nancy anymore." Hmm. He said, "No, I don't think she'd want you to say that. Mm-hmm. I think what she'd want you to say is, even she could live this way, mm-hmm. and so we—we we can too." And I mean, I—I I scrapped my entire eulogy and hmm. wrote a new one, and because he was absolutely right, that's exactly what she would have wanted. So I think about people like her. I think about, you know, people that I know in my life um, that I just admire greatly. Um, people like this guy named Wendell, a guy named Ty. These, mm-hmm. these are guys who are completely unassuming folk. But, it, you know, if I could say who gets their mansion in heaven mm-hmm. next to Jesus, it'd be these kinds of people. Nancy, her daughter, Patsy. Yeah, I mean, 
So when I when I think about that, how do we live that life, I look at and how they live. Mm-hmm. It's easy, I think, to to even people like you know Fred Rogers, people mm-hmm. idolize a lot and go, yeah, but that's Mister Rogers. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But these people, I I know, and I sure. I've walked with them, I know their lives, and somehow, even through everything that they've gone through and have lived through, they still manage to to follow what they really believe Jesus is calling them to do. And I think it's because they are convinced, whether it's cognitive convincing or the spirit, that that's just the better way to live. Mm. And and I think we all maybe in our guts know that anytime we live a little less selfishly. Sure. It just feels, I don't want to say better, because then it becomes like, well, if I live selflessly, then I feel better, and that mm. means that I get something out of it. Um, but we just know it feels more right. Yeah. And... So yeah, that that would be, I guess, what I would say. How do we try to live this way like Jesus is, you know, in the smallest ways sometimes is all it takes and being intentional about it. We can't, I'm going to change overnight sure. and suddenly, you know, sell everything we have and give it away and change the world. But but we can make small changes. And, and, and I've said this in like baccalaureate services in high school and stuff. We can't change the world, but we might change somebody's world. Mm. And that that's that's pretty good. Sure. And so, yeah, yeah. Chris, what's one thing from your sermon today you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? Yeah, I I hope it, it's this idea of you know whatever our expectations may be, that as great as they may sound, it's hard to imagine that whatever the reality is that God has for us won't be better. Hmm. And even if it doesn't sound to us like it will. I mean, you know, a a mansion on a gold street sounds pretty nice, Mm. I I guess. But if that's not what it is, it's still got to be better. Mm. And so not to sit down and write out a list of our expectations, but to at least be a little more aware of what we expect and to appreciate a little bit more the reality of God's kingdom over against those expectations. Chris Thomas, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Day One is the voice of America's historic Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever.